If you go through a design process, by the time you get to the end and you develop a product, making any significant change to that is not only nearly impossible, it's often very costly. A lot of people, when they go to a new location, they buy one of the travel guides to that country. And ideas that are all centered or framed with the goal of supporting identity development. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, educators and innovators, welcome to the electrifying season three of ISSEDU Learn. Ask me anything with your dynamic host, Mike P and Dana. We're not just here to make waves, we're here to ride the tidal waves of your incredible support to the 21,000 strong downloaders and listeners who joined us on this incredible journey. We tip our hats to you. Your unwavering enthusiasm and active engagement fuels the very heartbeat of our mission. This season, we're not holding back. We're unleashing a tsunami of valuable insights, strategies, and practical wisdom that will effortlessly weave into the tapestry of your educational institutions. Whether you're ready to implement change today or set sail on a journey of profound exploration, trust us, we got you covered. For the inside scoop of upcoming events and certification opportunities that rock your world, point your browsers to iss.edu slash events. Are you ready to ride the podcast wave of a lifetime? Mike P and Dana are here to make it happen. Let the learning adventures begin. ISSEDU Learn, Ask Me Anything, Season 3. Dive in. Hello, dear educators and change makers. It's a pleasure to welcome you back to another episode of EDU Ask Me Anything, proudly presented by ISS EDU. I'm your host, Mike P, the educator's best friend, and joining me today is my co-host, Dr. Dana Speckowatz, who serves as the Director of Learning Research and Outreach at ISS. How are you today, Dana? Great. Just got back from our recruitment fair in Atlanta, Georgia, and we helped a whole bunch of people find new jobs, so it was awesome. Oh, very nice. Did you like witness any live hiring? Tons, tons. I think almost every educator who was looking for a job found a job and they were excited and we were doing hugs. Many of them had multiple offers and so they got to choose what country, what school, what school leader they want to follow. It was pretty exciting. It was great. Oh, wow. Exciting. All right. Uh, we have also have Molly Faye with us who's serving as the voice of the audience. Molly Faye's our Customer Support and Technology Coordinator here at ISS. Molly Faye, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Just got that holiday cheer about me. And where are you calling from today? Calling from my in-laws place in Minnesota. Nice and cozy and family oriented today. Yeah. And how's your weather? Snow. Uh, it's best time of year for snow, so I'm thrilled. Okay. You're the one that gets snowy weather at this point in time. Got it. Thank you so much, Molly Faye, for joining us today. We're thrilled to have everyone back for season three, episode 13 of our podcast. Your unwavering support always warms our heart. Don't forget to hit the subscribe, give us a thumbs up and share your thoughts and reviews on your preferred platforms. We could be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, and many more. Our mission is clear to equip you with valuable insights and practical strategies for your educational institutions. Stay in the loop about upcoming virtual events and certification by visiting iss.edu slash events. And if you're on the lookout for any new career opportunities, as you heard from Dana, our in-person job fairs has everyone hired. So please go ahead onto iss.edu slash events in order to see those upcoming fairs. 
So let's dive into today's conversation. Today, we have the privilege of hosting Damian Cooper, the mastermind behind assessments, as I would call it. Damian has recently shared his wealth of knowledge and expertise through a course on the EDU Learn platform that we have. The course gave us insights and we delve into assessments that authentically align with standards, empower students with student-centered grading techniques, and harness data to inform instructional decisions. Our discussion today is titled Align Your Assessment to SBGR. And before we get into the topic, just want to take a moment and get to know our guest, Damian Cooper. I have a short description here of Damien, so I don't know if Damien wants to introduce himself or he wants to listen to this wonderful description intro of his. It depends how long it is, Mike. <laughs> 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 no, it is, it is all of two sentences. Damien okay, go Cooper. for it. <laughs> all right. Damien Cooper is a seasoned education consultant with an expertise in assisting schools and school districts throughout Canada, the United States, and globally to enhance their instructional and assessment capabilities. With a diverse professional background, Damien has served as a secondary English, special education, and drama teacher, held roles as a department head and a librarian, and provided consultancy services to schools over his extensive career spanning more than three decades. He has honed his focus on student assessment. Damien also has a few publications, but I'll let him talk about that himself. Welcome, Damien. Thanks, Mike. It's over four decades now. Four decades. Oh, <laughs> oh. <my>. all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And thanks. I don't know about mastermind. Uh, very kind of you, but no. Well, I four just decades. Had... No, no mastermind at all. Well, a lot of experience, uh, an awful lot of experience, and much of that in global international schools, I'm, I'm happy to say, although I'm actually enjoying not traveling nearly as much these days. But wonderful memories, my wife and I often, in fact, last night we were looking at uh, images from pictures taken in some of our international travels. So lots of fond memories. Thanks for the plug on the books. My most recent one, Rebooting Assessment, was published in February of 2022. And I am proud to say that it was nominated for and won the gold medal of the Ben Franklin Awards as Very Best nice. Educational Publication of 2022, which I didn't even know it had been nominated. And then to have it win was, it was kind of a nice way to probably end my educational writing career. That was book number four. And while I love writing, it is, as you can imagine, a, a massive undertaking. So that was kind of a nice way to say perhaps my swan song to the educational publishing community. Well, congratulations. I mean, that's, that's so fantastic. How did you end up getting, like, where did your passion for assessment come from? Where does it stem from? Well, interesting. I have to say, as I indicated in my first book, that I really think coming from England as a 14-year-old from a system that was entirely norm-referenced, exclusive, you took, you know, this set of three exams when you were 11 years old, which basically deemed whether you were university material or factory material. And of course, I thought that that was the way the world worked as a 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old, and then came to Canada and realized that education can and should be much more inclusive, not exclusive. So I, th I think I got really fascinated by finding myself in a high school in Canada that had an academic stream, it had a business stream, it had a technology stream, all in the same school. And this blew my mind because I was used to, you either went to grammar school, uh, which meant you were headed for university, or you went to secondary modern school. So 
that was probably the beginning. And then opportunities within about 10, eight years of starting teaching. And then my colleague and I, Faye Ward and I, we won a Ministry of Education contract to develop assessment materials for the province. And that was beginning in 1986. And we got the job, an office, the secretary, time, money. And then it was sort of panic. Oh, uh, we don't know enough about assessments. So we were kind of learning on the fly. But we'd been given the contract because of our proposals. So that really was massive for me in the mid 80s. And then the opportunity to meet amazing thought leaders. And I always acknowledge particularly uh, my debt to Grant Wiggins, the late Grant Wiggins, because he became a, a mentor and I just so admired his work. He was a huge influence on, to this day, my thinking. Thanks for asking, Dana. Yeah. Thank you for your contributions to the yeah. field. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> yes. You spoke about when assessments came about, but when, when did authentic learning experiences come about for you? Damien? Do you know, Mike, I think it was also part of that coming to Canada as a 14-year-old. And of course, my notion of assessment coming from England was tests, examinations, secure assessments, which took place in a large room or in a gymnasium. They were timed. There was no talking, no engaging, no use of resources or anything else. But then seeing in, in that high school uh, back in 1969, hands-on assessment, uh, young people building things and creating things. And, and this was not something that had been part of my academic experience. So that was really profound. And then early in my teaching career, I went from an academic school to a vocational school where if you set homework every night and you assess these young people only through traditional paper and pencil assessments, they were going to fall flat on their face for a whole host of reasons, not the least of which were, you know, not a particularly supportive academic environment at home and many of them having jobs. So, I realized, whoa, if, if, if I stick with the tried and true and what had been my experience in terms of finding out what these kids know and can do, they're all going to fail. So that was really significant in terms of helping me understand kind of philosophically and then practically the need to assess in alternate ways. So through performance, through conversation, which, of course, as you folks know, has become a major theme and focus in my work. And then the other huge thing that's come along are the handheld devices, the smartphones and the tablets, which enable us to capture and record what kids are doing in the moment rather because a test of course always occurs after the learning it's a substitute actually for learning in the moment it's okay what did you remember what whereas performance assessment conversational assessment occurs in the moment when the light bulb goes on or whatever it may be so it's just that's sort of what has excited me so much and and then sharing that with teachers having the opportunity to travel extensively and find the greatest thing about being a consultant is I get to go into all these classrooms and meet teachers who are doing the most amazing things. And then I would say, do you mind if we come in here and record what you're doing uh, in a week or a month or, or next year? And if that's been the raw material of uh, all of my publications has come from, uh, yes, a little bit my own experience as a teacher, but mostly from the amazing teachers I've been privileged to work with. Could you give us an example or a strategy in one of the classrooms that you've seen where a strategy that is transforming grading methods that empowers students and encourage a growth mindset? 
Are you an educator looking to elevate your career? Consider Moreland University, your gateway to success in international schools. They offer fully online programs with flexible start dates and affordable tuition rates, allowing you to balance work and personal life. Moreland University isn't your typical institution. Say goodbye to dull lectures and hello to engaging, interactive learning with passionate educators like yourself. It's a hands-on education that sparks creativity and prepares you for the real-world challenges. With Moreland University, you can earn a prestigious U.S. teaching certification or a master's degree in education from anywhere in the world. Their programs are designed to empower you to become a leader in your field. Don't wait. Take your steps forward, transforming your career today. Visit www.moreland.edu and apply now. Let Moreland University help you make a difference in student lives worldwide, one classroom at a time. Your journey to becoming an exceptional educator starts with Moreland University. A brighter future begins with you. One of the most remarkable examples which appeared in my second book, Talk About Assessment, High School Strategies and Tools, in which, as well as being described in a case study, there is also a video of what went on in this classroom. And it was a grade 12 uh, economics teacher who used a G7 simulation in his classroom as the anchor summative assessment. And everything in this economics course from day one to that final week was backward plan to enable students to be successful in that G7 simulation. And basically it was open-ended. It was truly problem solving in the moment. Students were grouped in groups of four according to one of the G7 countries. And, and, and there were two members of a business and two members representing government. And they were as a team from each of those countries. And they had to work over a five-day simulation to maximize their GDP, to negotiate trades with other countries. And it was all on the fly. And, and kids made poor decisions early on in the week. And they would see the teacher, Jeff Bolton, was projecting live on a smart board the consequences of each country's decision making so they would see on this interact kind of like in uh you know uh, in the on the stock exchange mm-hmm. jeff would <laughs> press the update button and boom they would see the consequences of what they just negotiated and then it was either yay or it was oh boy we got we got to rethink this right. trade deal uh, that was so incredibly powerful and yet students still had to submit based on their country's performance, written reports about the decisions, good and bad, and the consequences, as well as Jeff having one-on-one conversations with the students, as well as assessing that simulation in the moment. So it was it was just so beautiful. And students who, they told me, the students told me how they would struggle with traditional secure examinations, mm-hmm. but in this real authentic in the moment environment where they got to shine and if they made a mistake they got to go back and rethink it it was such a an incredibly powerful example so that's in talk about assessment high school strategies as i said to this day it's one of the most amazing experiences i've had watching a brilliant teacher create brilliant authentic assessment thank you for sharing and Damien, you know, at the end, of, so it's funny because when I hear sometimes pushback from teachers saying, well, it just takes so long to create those, right? But then our students are, it's so much more real and it's such a better way to assess our learning than one size fits all for everybody. And so 
if when you hear teachers say, oh, well, that just takes too long, or I don't have the time to create something like that, what would be your answer to them? How would you address that? Well, yeah, we can never create more time, but we can use time more effectively, more efficiently. And so one of the things that I, I mean, I always think of Douglas Reeves speaking. This was a session long, long ago that I heard. And and what I took away was Douglas Reeves saying, if you're going to implement meaningful change in your classroom, then the first thing to do is make a list of what you're going to stop doing to allow time and energy for what you're going to start doing. And he then elaborated in terms of, you know, make a list of everything you do for a day, everything you do for five days during your your work hours from an instructional curriculum assessment point. And then he said, go through each of those points once you've made your list and ask yourself, okay, what benefit did that action have? How did it improve either information for me or learning from my students. And if you hesitate, then then you could probably cross that out. And, and so going through an awful lot of what we do as teachers is routine, but we have to ask, does it really have an impact? So we can indeed use time more more effectively. I've I've written in in all of my books, but particularly in the last one, Rebooting Assessment, about strategies that teachers who we videotaped used also to maximize time on task. And that included what happens when kids are coming into class, an awful lot of wasted instructional time, interruptions, and and how you minimize those things, how you make sure that children, students in classrooms are not asking, what do I do now? I finished, you know, but have really, really excellent proactive routines so that students, children, whatever age, always know what to do next. So that if the teacher's engaging with one child or a group of children who need support, she's not being constantly interrupted by other kids. And we saw examples of highly disciplined, on-task, excellent behavior from children from grade one right through to grade 12. We're not talking only about the more mature students by virtue of, of their age, not at all. In fact, sometimes quite the opposite. When you were talking, you remind me of Kevin Bartlett from the Common Ground Collaborative loves to say, what would you fight to teach? You know, and those are the key essential pieces. And then, you know, there are so many things that are part of a teacher's day that you're like, wait a minute, like we could eliminate that and open up so much more room in our schedules. I think. Yeah, 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 really. It's so true. But it's a critical question. And it's interesting in that in, in rebooting assessment, because the time challenge came up with every single situation we were in talking to teachers. Yes, I'd love to, but and the but was always about lack of time. So we actually included throughout the book, I think there are probably 15 of them called a little text features called It's About Time. And of course, a little bit of a play on words there, but that It's About Time text box all the way through acknowledged one or more teachers, yeah, buts about the time problem, and then we addressed it right in that text box, because it can often be the reason for teachers not trying something that is perhaps research-based, sound, and I'd love to try it, but. Mm. (laughs) Love that. As an educational professional, you likely understand the positive and crucial role inclusion has on classroom culture. And you might be on the lookout for a community of like-minded educators. Senya International is that community. Senya is a nonprofit organization that advocates for individuals with disabilities and promotes inclusive educational practices across the globe. 
With a network of educators, families, students, and professionals, Senya offers connection, professional learning, and support for educators like you. Connect with the Senya community via our membership program or a local chapter in your area. Enjoy professional learning with the Senya community via our podcasts, online certification program, and in-person or virtual conferences. Support Senya through our sponsorships, awards, and scholarship program. So, what are you waiting for? For more information, head to our website, senyainternational.org. That's S-E-N-I-A international.org. And together, we continue to make a difference and fulfill our vision of living in an inclusive world. So, Damien, my husband right now is in the middle of a career change. He's back to school to be an educator, and he attended the course that included your session. Oh, and great. he was, yeah, he was really excited because in his college courses that he has right now, majority of the conversation that they're having about assessments are very not in line with what you're sharing. And traditional. Yes, traditional. There you go. And he was just super pumped about the different innovative ways that teachers were updating and evolving their assessments. And I guess my question for you is just what would you say to schools, teachers, or even my husband's university who seems really hesitant to evolve their assessments? Yeah, and it's a problem everywhere, but it's a particularly difficult problem in the post-secondary environment. The place where I would have to say I have had least impact has been in the college post-secondary environment. And don't get me wrong, I'm not going to say banish traditional forms of assessment, test examinations from the K-12 framework or from the post-secondary framework. But the point is realizing the shortcomings of traditional assessment. And the best way that I have found, again, I tip my hat to Grant Wiggins in terms of the power of analogy, is to talk about in the world outside of school, the examples of performance assessment are everywhere. Think the clearest example, of course, is is getting your driving certification, where no one would say that you should be granted your driver's test, enabling you to maneuver this vehicle on incredibly busy streets at high speeds, purely on the basis of scoring, let's say, 85 or 90 percent on the multiple choice test based on the driver's handbook. So the message there, of course, is that there is a critical knowledge component which must be mastered as a prerequisite to getting into the car and driving it. But no one would argue, I don't think, that using data from a knowledge assessment, in this case, a standardized time test, multiple choice test, can possibly address all of the critical performance skill targets associated with driving a car. There is no way around it, but there has to be a performance assessment to determine whether or not Molly Fay, as well as having excellent knowledge of the rules of the road, can actually drive this thing around the streets and on the highways. So I use those kinds of examples with the skeptics. I'm not saying get rid of, I'm simply saying realize that traditional assessments, which typically tap into knowledge that has been memorized, internalized, that is only one of three points on the triangle. And the other has to do with is there conceptual understanding and critically with respect to performance, has the learner mastered the requisite skills and competencies, competencies being skills in context, to enable them to be said to be proficient. 
And of course, that's the driving analogy. But in virtually every field outside of education, we recognize the importance of balanced assessment, of having more than one piece of data. It's really only in the education environment that we have and do continue to put all our eggs into one basket and use a score as a proxy for mastery or proficiency. It's just not. I hope that helped. It did. Thank you. I love the analogy. It's one that I myself, not in education, can understand and get behind. I'm a convert. (laughs) Uh, Damon, would you be able to speak to us a little bit more about data and how the utilizing data could drive instructional improvements and enhance student student outcomes overall? Happy to, Mike. Data is a word that is very popular in the science community, in the engineering community, an awful lot of teachers, I would say the majority of teachers in my experience are scared to death of data. And I think making a huge generalization, as a profession, we have tended to be more data averse than other professions, certainly the medical profession. Now, there are some reasons for that. Medical science tends to proceed on the basis of scientific research where you have a control group. Well, as teachers, we're going to be in trouble ethically if I say to the three of you, well, you're going to be in my control group, so you're not going to benefit from the new innovation or the new resources. But in order to gather you know, really reliable data, I have to do that. Well, that's one of the problems with the experimental approach to research in educational settings. That having been said, of course, we do derive massive amounts of data, generally quantitative data, from the millions of tests that are administered around the world in the K-12 setting. And I'm sorry, but I'm a bit cynical that an awful lot of that test use. It utilizes tests which are driven by market forces and commercial enterprises, which I'm very suspect of. But that's a whole other discussion (laughs) and argument for another day. So what can we do? First of all, data great, but data tends to be very often numerical. And it comes from assessments, be they traditional assessments, such as tests and examinations, or digital data coming from the cell phone or the tablet, which I'm advocating. But then what has to happen is that the data has to be transformed into information. Teachers can't do anything instructionally with numbers and scores. They have to say, what do these data tell us. They're then moving from data into information about, okay, what do these numbers actually infer? And it's only ever infer, remember. What do these numbers infer about strengths and gaps in my classes, let's say, reading performance? So we then go from data, we take the numbers, but we turn them into information, which reflects our program, in this case, let's say our reading program, but we're not done yet. We now have to go one more step, I would argue, and that is turn information into narrative story. That's about saying, okay, I'm the teacher who read these data, gathered these data, turn that information into some hypotheses, some inferences, but now I need to look at the individual students in my class who I know. Now I'm turning the information into the context that's informed by my experience of working with Molly Fay, with Mike, with Dana. 
And this is where teachers' professional judgment, intuition, experience of individual children has to come into play. So data is important, but I never like the term data-driven instruction because that takes out the information and the narrative and the student. It must never be data-driven instruction. It must be data-informed. So we use data, but then we turn it into information in the context of our program. And then critically, we say, all right, but I got to think about Molly Faye because I know she's been struggling lately. So now I'm putting that information into my narrative about Molly Faye. And this is why teachers' professional judgment can never be replaced by AI, can never be replaced Mm -hmm. by robots, because only we as human beings interpreting the work of other human beings, the children in our classroom, only we are equipped to do this incredibly important work. Could you equip our uh, listeners with some tools maybe outside of AI that could actually help in collecting data and transforming that data into information? And then also to make various narrations from the information that is collected. Hi, everyone. This is Aaron Moniz, one of the co-founders of Inspire Citizens. My name is Scott Jameson, and I'm the Global Collaborations Lead for Inspire Citizens. We help inspire schools to live their mission of global citizenship. We look at existing units through the lens of empathy to impact and connect student learning with themes like sustainable development, harmony with nature, social justice, and the holistic well-being of our community. We also work with students to co-design student leadership programs. Another way that we support educators is through our Global Citizenship Certificate in partnership with ISS. This certificate program involves best practice resources for global citizenship education, interactive opportunities to engage with other cohort members, a great team of coaches to walk you through your learning, and optional opportunities to connect via seminars with other participants from around the world. Please visit inspirecitizens.org and click on the Inspire Educators tab to register for the Global Citizenship Certificate, visit the ISS website, or go to the ISS EduLearn Passport to register today. At Inspire Citizens, we believe that the young people in our schools have the potential to lead change and inspire others through their work towards a more sustainable future. We look forward to working with you, and we hope that together, our resources and your contacts can help to create a more harmonious future. Yeah, my favorite tools is an ice. I'm not being flippant there. I'm not being flippant, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm really serious about that. And that's back to my notion of triangulation. That having been said, Mike, there's no question that in the technology-rich environments in which we now live and work, developments such as e-portfolios are absolutely brilliant tools. Because e-portfolios, I mean, I was an advocate of traditional paper file folder portfolios way back in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, where they became really, really popular. I especially love portfolios that, for example, 
one of my favorites was this teacher who taught, if you can get this, mathematics and English at the high school level. And her portfolios were these beautiful blends of a kid's math understanding and their literary understanding. But anyway, I digress. But today's e-portfolio, the power of a portfolio, and I'm not talking about a best piece portfolio. I'm not talking about the kind of portfolio that you would run off to a job interview with to show the best things you've ever done. Educational portfolios are windows into the learning process. So they include first tries. They include unsuccessful work. They include first drafts. They include mistakes. They include that messy process of learning with items in those portfolios, artifacts which, yes, have been selected by teachers, but just, if not more importantly, portfolios, the contents of which are curated by the student themselves. These five pieces show my progression in social studies and my understanding of indigenous issues. These three drafts show my story that I'm really now proud of, evolving from a pretty sketchy, not very good piece through to final product. And when we digitize these and we go with e-portfolios, of course, we teachers can benefit from the organizational features of this kind of technology. And the other huge feature, of course, of e-portfolios is that you've got access for multiple users. So parents through a parent portal can look in through that window on their child's learning. Very, very powerful. I think what we have to be careful of with what is an incredibly powerful digital tool, the e-portfolio, is to make sure that the contents are governed by an understanding of standards. Portfolios cannot just be just a place to put stuff. You know, I had fun doing this today, so Mm. here's some stuff. There does need from the point of view to keep it manageable and useful, the students need to be required, even from a very young age, to say, this piece of work or these three pieces of work show me getting better at. And the at is then the standard or the set of standards that they are working towards. So this is back to the notion of what we really mean by standards-based grading and standards-based assessment is that there is a logic and there is a methodology that's brought into play to govern what actually gets uploaded, what gets shared, so that it's not just a bunch of stuff. Damien, I am a huge fan of e-portfolios, and I used to use them in my previous schools. And I think it also speaks to, like, it's beyond the grade. (laughs) And so we also... I think it was really important for me at that when I first started teaching internationally. My I was at uh, international school at Bangkok, and we had a lot of students who were English as additional language students. And you know, one of the things, like some of the, I got a little pushback in the beginning about e-portfolios because they said, "Oh, well, we only want to show our best work," and I said, "No, no, 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 no." And the fact, like, it was so impressive to see them start their freshman year. And by senior year, the massive amount of growth, to me, that showed potential so much better than a grade, right? A grade is just a number. It doesn't show me what someone's 
potential is to learn and to be able to go from, you know, a certain level of writing or a certain level of reading in grade nine, and then to be here by grade 12 was, it just was incredible. And so it started to really click within our school. And then I brought those to Delhi as well. But I think that it was a really important component to let students also own their learning. And that was right at the cusp when, you know, online was going crazy. Right. I started those in 2006. So I said, you know, then you have an academic footprint. So if someone Googles you, who cares about a silly post you might have put on Instagram? But your academic profile is what they find. And that's who we want students to start to think about. It's a great way to integrate digital literacy, I think, into the whole component as well. It is. And your comments, Dana, really point to the fact that curating an e-portfolio is one of the best ways to foster metacognitive competency in the children. That is to say, when instead of just saying it was fun to do this today and here it is, but from a very, very young age, this piece of work shows me getting better at. And here's an example of where I really didn't understand this problem. Or So that's the power of that growth portfolio, as, I, as we're saying, rather than the best piece portfolio. Totally I, I'm, I'm a great fan. I found myself over the years pushing, pushing, pushing very, very hard with teachers, children and parents about the need to see mistakes. Don't erase your mistakes. Don't hide your mistakes. They are the raw material of instruction. It's only through struggles that the teacher sort of knows where to steer you. And you, only through the struggles that your later success is apparent relative to where you started. And this is all about progress and growth as opposed to simply achievement, i.e. here's this thing. Thank you so much, Damien, for that. I keep having to note the thought process in my head, like, this e-portfolio is like a math problem where you have to show your work, <laughs> like how you got from A to B. So I guess yes. that's what you want to see in the e-portfolio. But thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. Uh, if we, we're here at the end of our time. If you could just let our guests know where they could find your publications or where they can email you or if you have any social media, if you're active, let us know about that. Yes, certainly. My two more recent publications, Redefining FAIR and the most recent one, Rebooting uh, Assessment, are both available through Solution Tree, directly from the publisher. Certainly they're available through Amazon. Google them. You, you, you can read about them. You can go to my own website, planteachassess.ca. And by all means, I tend not to be that active on social media. I'm showing my age, but on X at Cooper D 1954, uh, my email address, DamienCooper11 at gmail.com. But I do have a lot of the videos that I've done over the years. If you just Google Damien Cooper assessment, um, you're going to see lots of my work, in, including me getting kind of passionate in live settings about, about this work. Thanks for the opportunity. Once again, thank you to all of you at ISS. You're great to work with. And I love your comments and your questions. This is just like having a conversation live and it's it's fun. I prefer this than presenting. Yeah, this is so great, isn't it? So authentic. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Damien. Thank you for sharing your valuable insights and experiences with us today. It's been a pleasure having you on EDU Learn. Ask me anything. 
And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you found this episode inspiring and informative, please be sure to hit the like, subscribe, and share AMA with your educated friends. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes. Until next time, keep exploring, keep learning, and keep making a positive impact in the world of education. Until next time, my fellow educators. Bye-bye.